Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. Hey, y'all. Happy Wednesday. Ever since we've walked in, I've been reading Aida's face and wanting to figure out what she thought of Marriage Story, which we all watched before this. Well, I did nothing but complain about it the moment I walked in. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You were I, doing like a bit the minute you started. Yeah. <laughs> you saw Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, that black woman, Scarlett Johansson. Sure, yes. And um, Keanu Reeves' evil cousin, Adam <laughs> Driver. <laughs> um. Yeah. He sort of looks like someone drew Keanu Reeves with his left hand, right? Yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. with their eyes like half closed. Yeah. I say that affectionately, like I'm a fan. I didn't enjoy the movie that much. I thought it was good. I thought it was... Those are two contradictory statements. Go ahead, keep no, going. No, I thought it was a good movie that I didn't enjoy. Got mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the scene work was great. Uh, I respect it as a writer. I think Noah Baumbach is a great writer and a director, but... It really didn't give me anything. It's not a movie that I would enjoy. It's not a movie I would seek out to watch again or even recommend to people. Mm. Yeah, I would say the same thing. I think I really enjoyed, you know, the way that he would make the scenes kind of disorienting by having everyone talk at the same time. That was happening in the earlier part of the movie, and then he stopped doing that, I think, as far as directing is concerned. But I like that. As a mechanism, I like that. But it was also very confusing. But that kind of speaks to how a divorce is, I think, also, that you're just a little confused and don't really know what's going on, and a lot of people are talking at once. So, yeah, as a device, I see why he did that. I feel like there are two or three things that are great about the movie, and specifically that. I think it gets into the disorientation of a divorce really well and the weird murkiness of, am I mad at the person I'm marrying? Should I be mad at the system that is making us go through it this way? You know, things like that. As an awards fan, I like this movie because... All the performances, generally speaking, fit into one of the categories. Like mm-hmm. those are mm-hmm. su- like Laura Dern is a supporting actress. You know mm-hmm. Ray Liotta, who is not being talked about at all, and I thought he was great in this movie. He's fantastic in the movie. I mm-hmm. thought that Laura Dern and Ray Liotta were the highlights of the film. They yeah. were giving me Adam's rib. Yeah, right, right, right. Classic contemptuous divorce situation. Mm-hmm. And I liked Adam Driver a lot too. You're right. It's it was longish, and also it wanted to be a broad comedy at times, which I thought was the weirdest thing about the movie. Like everything mm-hmm. Merritt Weaver was doing, where she has to serve the divorce papers uh, on behalf of Scarlett Johansson to Adam Driver, and it was this kooky I Love Lucy esque situation where she's in the house, like should, mm-hmm. should I give him now? Yeah. What later? You know, but or the scene with Alan Alda where he's like, I'm going to begin to tell you this joke, and then it doesn't go anywhere. And I was like, What is the purpose of this? Yeah, what is right. the purpose of the scene entirely? There are a lot of tonal shifts in the film that don't really work for me and ultimately I feel like Noah is a actor's director Mm -hmm. you know he specifically seems to make films that are for actors to really get their teeth into a good monologue you know like a good scene and coming from theater that is fantastic I, I love seeing that sometimes but the story just doesn't really appeal to me mm-hmm. unfortunately 
I like I said, I loved Laura Dern. I loved Ray Liotta. I loved Alan Alda. I would love to see them in a legal comedy. <laughs> I think he could write that too. I yeah. miss the era of a legal comedy. Yeah. I don't know. I also will say that I did not dislike Scarlett Johansson. Uh, mm-hmm. at, I actually at, thought she it's one of my favorite performances. I was yeah. surprised. I was very surprised. Yeah. That. At times, I feel like she is out of place, but I feel like she was essentially playing herself in this film, and I thought she was great. I liked her better than Adam Driver. Really? Mm. Yeah. I wouldn't say that, but one thing that surprised me about the movie was I thought it was going to keep us right in between Adam and Scarlett the entire time, and it really ends up showing you more of his side. Mm-hmm. Not that it makes you more sympathetic to him necessarily, but just I lost her a little bit. And then mm-hmm. she ends up almost fading into a supporting performance, which in another year, she would be forced into a supporting category and she'd be a front runner since she's one of those technical, lead, you know, like Viola Davis and Fences mm-hmm. type wins. Okay. I would argue that the film was on a side, and it was on the side of Los Angeles sucks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, Los it, Angeles it, was not cute. It Except very, for the child. The, yeah. the only person who likes Los Angeles is the child. It was really clear that Noah hates L.A. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like every scene in L.A. was treated as, what is this kooky town? Yeah. yeah. And the schlocky sci-fi show that she was part of mm-hmm. that gets nominated later. It's, mm-hmm. it's just everything in L.A. seemed directed by someone who disliked L.A. So And all the divorce I, proceedings are occurring in like disgusting office buildings. Yeah. 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 So. I would say none of the characters were redemptive for me. I mean, like maybe that is to speak to the fact that we're all flawed and, you know, this is a messy process that's going to end up having people you dislike in it. But every time someone spoke, I was like, that is such a you thing to say, <laughs> Laura Dern. That is such a Laura Dern-ass character for you. Like all those things. So I, I, I guess overall I enjoyed the movie, but it was laboring to get through. Yeah. It's too long. It's a little it's long. It's too long. Yeah. It's a little long. Netflix and these too long Oscar movies. You have too much right. money. It was shorter than The Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> right. I guess I have to just be thankful for that at this point. Yeah. That's if true. you really want a hot Netflix movie to watch, watch Atlantics. Oh, yeah, which I still have okay. yet to see. Maddie Diop. Beautiful film. And the cinematographer did Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Which as we well. love. Which yes, we love. Which is sumptuous. Yeah. It's sort of like a very traditional idea of like a French, like a foreign film with queer elements and you know yeah. it, it, it sort of has um, I am it feels like the piano at yeah. times yeah lesbians well you know I hate <laughs> I wish it was called lesbians <laughs> yeah. you know I tend to hate movies with pianos right. but this fixed it that's true Good. there is yes. a piano in this movie. yes I wanted to fuck that piano <laughs> tickle the ivories wow how very um, fabulous Baker Boys of you <laughs> Anyway, we have a great episode today. We will be joined by one of Aida's faves, <laughs> Alex Wolf. And then we will be talking about the Golden Globe nominations and the snubs and the women who were cast out in the cult. The only season that matter, awards. To Lewis. That's right. Yes, the only season that matters to Lewis. And then we will get into the controversy surrounding Clint Eastwood's new film, Richard Jewell. This is a very movie-centric episode. Sorry, non-movie fans. I win again. <laughs> 2020 is nigh. We are days away from a year that will decide who we are as a country. Republicans want to suppress votes to ensure they get to make that decision. We cannot let that happen. The final vote will be extremely close. That's why we've partnered with Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight to make sure every vote we need to win will count at the ballot. Thanks to you, we are now only 405000 away from hitting our goal of $2 million for Fair Fight. With the money you've helped raise so far, 
Fair Fight has put teams in states like Michigan, Florida, and in Kentucky, where it helped restore 180,000 voters to the rolls. The governor's race was decided by only 5,000 votes. If all of you listening were to donate just $10 right now, Stacy would be able to put a voter protection team like the one in Kentucky in every battleground state next year. You hear that? We have a lot of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> this is truly the most important thing we can do right now to help make sure we win in 2020. So make sure this is the last thing you do in 2019. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash fairfight. Lewis. Oh, no, what? Are those Golden Globe nominations in your pocket, or are you just happy to see them? <laughs> what did this Jessica Rabbit-ass monster <laughs> on Why don't you come on up and give me the Golden Globe nomination sometime? <laughs> oh, it's more fully into Mae West now. Okay. <laughs> the Golden Globe nominations were announced on Monday, and surprise, surprise, there are no women in a lot of the categories. Big shock. That's true. The other thing that's missing is no network series in any of the series or acting nominations. Yeah. We're going to rewind this to remind everyone who votes for the Golden Globes. It is the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Right. I believe it is 68 guys with uh, Ukrainian names. Yes. Uh, It is not representative of Hollywood at all. It's not representative of critics is not representative of actors of producers of anything it's really just these old <laughs> european white guys shadowy people think of yes. the dealer in deal or no deal it's 68 of those yes and so every time golden globe nominations come out sometimes we discuss them as a precursor to prognosticating the oscars right. etc but for the most part they're really messy. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's why people like Aaron Taylor Johnson, who I love I love him and his large penis. Which we discovered <laughs> this week in a very... Uh, a it, Million it, Little it, Pieces, the I, movie I, none of us will watch. No, of course. Well, now I will. <laughs> <laughs> Just look at the photo online. <laughs> I'm going to say, you can gift that together. It works out. Got you, got you. It's why he won for Nocturnal Animals, Best Supporting Actor that year, which was wild. Yeah. And it reminds you that... The way you get Golden Globes is by throwing parties and pampering the people in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And not just parties in the way that everyone throws parties, because every award season, it's studios, networks, etc., throwing parties and reminding people. Spending a ton of money, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, meet the actors, you know, like, remember this, and um, Elton John throwing performances and singing all of his songs, vote for Rocket Man, it worked. But the HFPA really feels like it goes beyond that. Like, gift baskets, everything, Mm -hmm. to get voters to vote for you in the Globes. Particularly when it comes to TV shows, because famously, and I think we discussed this last year, it really feels like the newest TV series mm-hmm. is what wins. It has nothing to do with quality, really. Except yeah. Euphoria this year. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, that's also now like Did six, HBO six not- seven months old. There are newer things. I was going to say, as someone who's just kind of coming into like award show cognizance and starting to really care about this, I noticed it's like everything that came out in the last month is what's nominated for this. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. It's not a quarterly thing like that, right? No. So then what exactly is, why is this a pattern of behavior? Yeah. <laughs> no, why it's does barely this acceptable. It, I think it's, 
the movie angle of Golden Globes is interesting to look at, not just because it predicts the Oscars some of the time, but because we're all seeing those movies at the same time. Those all do really tend to come out at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Whereas TV shows, obviously, the quality of TV is such that we get great TV all year. And so when you have a bunch of stuff that only came out at the end of the year, it is incredibly suspicious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And especially the morning show. Oh, yeah. I'm also (laughs) going to come out. We got a lot of angry comments that we prejudged the morning show for only one episode as if, no one has ever done that in television before. Right. I've watched more episodes of The Morning Show, and it's bad. Holds up. My opinion okay? about it being bad holds up. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad, okay? I don't like the rest of it. I don't know what show Billy Crudup is in. Right. <laughs> I don't know why he is singing Not While I'm Around from Sweeney Todd with Jennifer Aniston at a party for no reason. I still think that... The shoehorning of Stephen Sondheim performances into everything we see recently. Very strange. I still think Reese Witherspoon is doing her best quick draw McGraw impersonation. <laughs> and Jennifer Aniston is walking around looking at mirrors going... <laughs> <laughs> so if, if that's that, for that you... That noise is called the sad Rachel. Yeah. Yes. If that's for you, then enjoy. But yeah, and they were justly rewarded at the Golden Globes. They are obsessed with... Awarding stars. That's yes. what it's mainly mm-hmm. yes, about. Yes. White unless, stars, though. Unless it's a new star of a TV show. Then you mm. get your Rachel Blooms in there yeah. or your Gina yes. Rodriguez. Or, yeah. I, I guess maybe Euphoria is a few months old at this point, but it was wild to me that Zendaya did not get a nomination. For dra- Dramatic Actress? Yes. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. I No, I love her on that show. She is also terrifying on that show. Yeah. Uh, but let's get into the... Good news first. Meryl Streep broke a record. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for her work on Big Little Lies. I'm going to say it. At this point, she has to dread getting nominated for a <laughs> I know. What does it do for I love her? at this point, she's just competing with herself. Right. right. This is her 34th nomination. No, you, it's like um, Alison Krauss at the Grammys. Like, Alison Krauss wakes up one morning, she goes, I know I'm the only bluegrass artist they've ever heard of, and I have <laughs> yeah, to deal with this ever. once a fucking again. <laughs> But there was also the fact that not a single female director was nominated for a Globe, including Greta Gerwig for Little Women, which is getting a lot of Oscar buzz. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there's also Marielle Heller for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is not what your instinct to name that movie would be. It's too long. You it think is you would just long. call it Mr. Rogers. Yeah, it's, it's a very weird name for a Mr. Rogers yeah. movie that is very beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but honestly, it's a very... It's a grim movie in most respects. So yeah. to call it a beautiful day in the neighborhood, it's just not intuitive to me. There was one director, however, who was particularly not having it. <laughs> Alma Hara, the director of Honey Boy, mm-hmm. who I adore just from her tweets. And also I was first introduced to her via her directing Beirut's Elephant Gun video. Mm. It's fantastic. She went on a Twitter spree the day of the nominations and she wrote... Good morning to everyone that's writing me about the Golden Globes. I feel you, but know this. I was on the inside for the first time this year. These are not our people, and they do not represent us. Mm -hmm. Do not look for justice in the award system. We are building a new world. And then she listed so many women who made films this year. Lulu Wang, Maddie Diop, Greta Gerwig, Olivia Wilde, Lorraine Scafaria, Mariel Heller, Melita Matsukas, you know, um, they all made films that really touched people this year. Um, Celine Schiama, um, and she said, that's our awards. No one can take that away. 
and to keep fighting for more women and people of color behind the camera by supporting their films. And don't make your in-game the political money that trades hands in the form of movie campaigns for people who can't see us and recognize us. And she called actually for gendered categories for directing, the same way that actor and actress is denoted. God, that is fascinating. Interesting. I wonder if that's going to cause problems on the line. Because it's already causing problems, at least in the political conversations about gender, Mm -hmm. for there to be demarcations like that. But I see the point that she's getting at. I wonder it, too, uh, because obviously there are people who are non-binary and there are people who, you know, would love to compete in a genderless category. But also, what do you do with the fact that if we went to just Best Actor and nominated men and women for it? Yeah. There would be no women. There would be no women. Except for Meryl Streep. Right. (laughs) I think my favorite part of her statement is she's basically saying, you know, awards aren't going to be this proper band-aid on a somewhat broken system. Like, Mm -hmm. stop expecting this to to solve what we know is a larger problem, Mm -hmm. you know, or uh, to to make you feel better about the fact that clearly women are so underrepresented in film Mm -hmm. uh, behind the camera in many ways. And also, it then puts you in the awkward position of having to defend every movie a woman has made and say, well, it obviously is the best, and then you have to compare it to what Scorsese made or whatever. It's like, no, they have merit on their own, and this award doesn't give them merit that they don't already have. Mm. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association president, Lorenzo, said, we vote by film. (laughs) By what? (laughs) That's it, his forward quote. We vote by film. What happened is that we don't vote by gender. We vote by film and accomplishment. Good to know. I uh, love that He answer. sees through gender. <laughs> he's 18 years old at a liberal arts college, and he's experimenting with sexuality. sexuality. Doesn't exist. Right. I'm glad that it is at least a different HFPA president than the one who sexually harassed Brendan Fraser in oh 2003. I had forgotten all about that story. Yeah. There was that long expose about that. Yeah. Uh, and they did an internal investigation. At, remember, they found out that he did inappropriately touch Red and Fraser, but it was meant as a joke, so it was fine. Right. As you can tell, it was hilarious. <laughs> I love a comedy bit done right. I really just wonder, with us having this conversation, with other directors having this conversation about how the men who make up the HFPA are not representative of Hollywood or any sort of voting body, what do we do about it? You know? Do we continue to just let the Globes be the Globes? Do we highlight other award shows, you know, like the NAACP Image Awards? Um, Do we put more focus on critics' awards? Because obviously it's a big, lavish show that people still tune into because stars turn up. I think don't cancel the Golden Globes or really change much about it other than let's amp up the clownishness. I think people should actually be wearing party hats at the Golden Globes. <laughs> yeah. There should be noise Make makers a mockery out of it their, so they, they know. Right. And everyone should actually somehow be drunker. I mean, that's why you tune into the Golden Globes, right? Like, there's like a strange, unique sloppiness to the, the whole thing. Even mm-hmm. the way Meryl Streep might give a speech at the Golden Globes and she's, you know, a perpetually, you know, uh, Queen of England level, uh, snatched and Mm -hmm. uh, in control. Even during those speeches, there's a little bit more sauciness coming out of her. Well, because they're drunk. Yes, but do you think even Meryl Streep is drunk at the Globes? I feel like she has a aperitif. Sure, okay. (laughs) That's what, right. And at the Oscars, you might not even have that. Yeah. So uh, I think you just have to keep in mind that the Golden Globes are, you know, 
a, a Telemundo level g- Sabado Gigante spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> and accept it as that. Also, I was saying um, earlier to you that why do we we keep giving credence to the Golden Globes and having these same conversations around the Oscars and the Golden Globes every single year? We find this interesting, but maybe we're even adding to it by talking about it now. Like maybe we should start trying to take away the power from the Golden Globes and stop paying attention to it as much. If we continue to see that mar- people in marginalized classes aren't being nominated at the same rate as like a Scorsese or a Tarantino, which I saw... A- Again, being nominated. I get that they would be nominated, but... The wildest one was Todd Phillips. I mean, Todd Phillips being nominated for a film that imitated Scorsese films in the same category as Scorsese is really very all about Eve. I would say, to me... How do you think Martine felt? Right. No. (laughs) uh, The Joker is a three-hour-long version of the Pearl Jam Jeremy video. (laughs) He gets upset. He raises hell. Wasn't that scary? The end. Yeah. Plus, I was walking through the mall the other day, and he threw a hot mint cafe in my face. Oh, I saw that tweet you wrote. Yes. That yeah. doesn't make sense unless, you know, Ira wrote a tweet about this, but okay. Um, when Todd Phillips sees me and a female director, he floors it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say also, there's something particularly super subjective about ranking direction of a movie. Like, are you most obsessed with the cinematography are you most mm-hmm. obsessed with performances like there's lots of rubrics to be measuring there yes so it's hard to say definitively well that person deserves to be there when there's no correct scale specifically for that whereas i think it's a little bit easier if you're talking about performances because they do the most with what they're given or you know i remember them specifically if they're in a supporting role and they you know they really took up space in a cool way you know but direction is much more ambiguous to me when I look at direction, I look at how they were working with the actors. I look at how these scenes are constructed. You know, obviously there's editing and there's cinematography to go into it. But, you know, the work of a really good director will shine through. You think so? Yeah. All right, I believe you. You're just not a director's person, I'm not. Too. I don't actually even have a great memory for them. It's actors I remember the most. Why? Yeah. They're special and I want to see them. Well, I love a director. All right, well. Yeah, I, I prefer the directors as well, and I especially pay attention to like color correction and framing and things like that. That's what I'm most interested in. The actors are, of course, a plus, but they have their own category. The score has their own category. Yeah. Best picture, I I really enjoy because it's the ambiance of the entire thing. It's not just bits and pieces of it. Just call me Hitchcock. The actors are just there. <laughs> <laughs> His dismissiveness toward the towards actors in general, very funny. Okay. Until, of course, he assaulted Tippi Hedren. Yes. I'm here for Kukor. I'm here for Mankiewicz, which, by the way, you recommended, this has nothing to do with the Globes, but you recommended that I watch A Letter to Three, Three Wives. Wives over the weekend. It's from Joseph Mankiewicz, who also directed All About Eve. And he won Oscars for writing them... Uh, Right in a row, 49 and 50. Yes. That movie is wild, yes. and I loved it. Every woman in that movie is pretty funny. Yes. he's He's got a gift for that. It is a sort of precursor to A Desperate Housewives, Aida. It is three women get a letter from this friend of theirs, Anne, who's leaving town, and she's like, I'm taking with me a memory of all of you. I'm leaving with one of your men. Oh. <gasps> And it's the melodrama that. is I love it. amazing. And it's as they get on this boat trip, and so they can't get to a phone. And it's so funny watching that shot of them all looking to a phone booth. 
and then the bus yeah. has to fall off. <laughs> and uh, the movie is them reflecting on their marriages and wondering, would my husband leave me? Am and I so the they go one? Through it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's actually it's, beautifully like constructed. What a yeah. wonderful premise. It's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's funny. It's very funny. And yeah. full of paranoia, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so watch that. And of course, yeah. watch All About Eve. But, you know, like that and All About Eve and, you know, like the melodramas, you know, it's like that's what I love about a director. You know, there's very much a difference between the sort of story a Barry Jenkins would tell Mm -hmm. and the story that a Noah Baumbach would tell or even Greta Gerwig. Right. But if you look at what the Golden Globes nominated this year, so it's uh, uh, Martin Scorsese for The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, Bong Joon-ho for Parasite, Sam Mendes for uh, 1917, which I haven't seen yet, and Todd Phillips for Joker. I mean, I would say the definition they're going by is expansiveness, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lushness paired with grimness. Of course. And I have long always felt that nominations for a director never really get into the grittiness of what a director's doing. I mean, even what I said about Marriage Story earlier, I would have put Baumbach over one of these directors just because I feel like the direction was there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The work was put in there. You would think there would be some sort of obligation to spread the genres in a category like this, but of course there isn't. So I feel like people, uh, in a way it's sort of similar to acting, I think people vote for the most directing, the most acting, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll be right back with Alex Wolf. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams' soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. 
Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. And we're back with Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf, say hi. What's up, everybody? Hello, hello, hello. We're so hello. happy to have you here. Thank I'm personally you. a huge fan and have Amazing. been. Amazing. A huge, huge fan. Um, loved you in Hereditary. Oh, thank you. Loved you. You served. You truly served. <laughs> um, I had the opportunity to see your new movie that you wrote and directed. Oh, you saw Cat in the Moon? Yes. Oh, that makes me so happy. Amazing. It's so impressed. Thank you. People because... should not be accomplished this young. You understand that, right? It <laughs> yeah, upsets me. It's so rude. Well, yeah. When you don't have any friends, it makes it a little <laughs> Oh, I see. Overcompensation. Yeah, you guys are my first three fa- friends. Oh, That's good. good yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. not looking for friends. Okay, cool. <laughs> so first two friends. Ouch. <laughs> but yeah, sincerely, it was so impressed because you're younger than me even like and I'm usually the youngest one and you're doing 20 million times better than me oh stop good to know but I wanted to ask you like what was the process of writing that movie was it difficult for you I mean you're talking about a lot of I mean almost every heavy hitting thing that you can in that movie so thank you that's really good to hear I think in New York you can feel like your city is Disneyland and you can do whatever you want and that it's wild and independent and it's really interesting to be like no it's you know you're still what you are and you don't get to own the city and do whatever you want yeah. um, and that was important to me but the really I was writing um, like a cluster of experiences um, and falling in love with this cast of characters in my mind and especially this lead character kind of figuring him out as I was writing and it took like four or five years to really build who he was <coughs> and and build him as a totally different guy than me you know he's he's this person who's 40 pounds heavier than me and shaved my head and I had all these tattoos and this person came into my mind that's almost gentle giant and so I don't I, I don't know I now I look back and I realize there was like 300 drafts where some of them are unreadably terrible and I, I think I just landed on one that is probably the best version of whatever that story is but um it was weird. I, I didn't have an outline or anything. I just kind of poured out all these emotions and all these experiences I was going through because um, I was completely sober in high school, actually, and I was kind of watching things happen, um, and that was really important. I felt like I was kind of walking around being a, like a researcher, almost like an alien who came down to Earth and was like watching, like, oh, so this is what a party is. And yeah, da, 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 da. Yeah. But it was nice because I got all these little tiny details. Like if you go to my party scene, something that maybe separates this movie from other 
teen movies or just movies in general is my parties. All the people in the background have stories that I gave them. And so you feel like there's a huge personal life in there. Like you're observing something happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. But thank you so much that you watched it. I'm really happy. No problem. Love Honestly, it. I'm going to watch it again. It's really every good. time somebody does like it, it's like a burst of joy. And when they don't, <clears throat> well, get out of my life. <laughs> oh, fuck you. Then. Uh, oh, fuck you. <laughs> speaking of someone who's done you know, scenes with um, teenagers, um, how do you feel watching entertainment that's, I guess, made for you? Because it's, oh. it's very uncommon for someone your age to be making content for your peers. And I feel like we all grew up watching teen shows that were written by adults. Like, (laughs) I just finished writing on a teen show, and it was like I was the youngest person in the room. What were you, what show? Daybreak on Netflix. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. But, you know, it's, you know, everyone else is like, 40 they're 50 you know so they're like so the what is it called a jewel (laughs) (laughs) well i think it sounds like you have good experience with it that it's tough Uh, i can always tell i mean i can just there's all there's it's just different it's just a different thing when it's young people when it's not everything written by adults for kids is a little condescending and feels a little um for the most part poppy and uh, a lot of moving parts and we gotta have this in there and this in there and kids are either overly cutesy not to shame euphoria i liked it but i think that that's a good contrast to yeah euphoria euphoria is the best i've seen in a while i thought it's great and everybody's great on it the the difference that i found with euphoria is that the kids are um really awful on euphoria Mm -hmm. in terms of um like it's really cynical, I felt like. And, and I really loved and felt for them, but I felt like the, the point of view is definitely angry and cynical, yeah. and, and that there's totally a place for that. Um, but you have Euphoria on one end of the spectrum, and then you'll have a movie that is overly cutesy and, um, I don't know, uh, not that necessarily whitewashes, but it kind of um, sanitizes what it is to be in high school. On the other side, and I don't relate to it, and there's the prom scene and the little dorky kid with the you know, little straight hair gets the prom date at the end and mm-hmm. oh he finally got the courage. And I guess I just wanted to make a movie that that what if the kid was super popular and people like him and he's warm and cool and all these things and instead of the conflict coming from there being any bullies or anything like that, the conflict comes from making friends and that being complicated. Because that was my experience is I would make these friends and then the problems would start later. Yeah. It wouldn't be you know, like in another movie, when they first meet him and he's smoking weed in the bathroom, they'd be like, hey, new kid. And they'd push him against the, yeah, you know, bathroom. Yeah, they'd knock the weed out of his mouth. Knock the weed out of his mouth. Loser. <laughs> you get out of this town and hit him, you know. Um, but instead, I wanted to make it like, hey, what's up? Come to this party, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when all the conflict starts. And I don't think adults maybe think the kids have the patience for that. But people really liked the movie and young people really responded to it and said, hey, I've been waiting for a movie to just like show me these people and not shove down my throat. Mm-hmm. You know, Jewel and Instagram, and yeah. da, 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 yeah. which is not really like the bulk of what's going on those are like toys but Mm -hmm. really teenagers are i don't know i think we're really loaded and confused and i always feel like the idea of popularity is adults reading kids in a shallow way i mean like uh, my my experience of high school was always everybody's kind of doing their own thing and there are a couple people like somebody has to win prom king obviously but it really never felt like classes of coolness to me i know i I don't know i'm always thinking about that and why it reappears and 
uh, popular kids jock. Yeah, it just it doesn't didn't feel it feels much more scary. Like if there were those tables of the band kids and the table, I feel like it would be a lot easier. I'd be like, oh, I'll go with these people. But I felt much more like at sea. Like where yeah. Yeah. where do I go? You know. I wish there were clicks. I wish there were. I could make yeah. sense of the people around. Where was me. my click? <laughs> exactly. I was looking for a click. Who am I? If anything, I felt school was divided by social class, not really. That's like social class at school, more like these kids have money, they're with those kids, etc. Mm. Right, right. Um, but I did go to a private school. So. Oh, you well, don't. Well, <laughs> this was a this was all for a bribe that Ira could make in front of you. You're like, I just want to tell you when private school. Well, what did you feel about the class? Because I I dealt with it and I felt like a a subtle way, but like remember when the prep school kids come and you see that they're in a different. Like, my kids are kind of upper middle class, and then there's, like, upper upper class kind mm-hmm. of bougie metropolitan kids. But I was curious. Oh, is that, like, the fight scene? Yeah, like, the those fight were... scene. Th- and those are, like, a, just a notch above, and you see how those and are douchier, and they're just, there's something different. I think definitely, especially by your character kind of going into a rage, and once again, I won't give it too much away, but he's... The inciting incident is like, why? Why do you think you can talk to me like that? And why are you wearing that stupid ass outfit? (laughs) You know, like I think that's what class divide is a lot for me. Is I would notice that they would do things that differentiate themselves from us. You know, and I've I you know I grew up in a very low income household in Nebraska, so like the class divide was very very obvious. But I, I did like that scene. I like to show that like people in. Your your characters, the kids that you had in that movie, were middle class, and they have every reason to be kind of angered by their environment being violated yep. by people who are like, "Oh, I'm rich and I We've run totally. shit and I can do whatever I want." So yeah, and I did love that scene. I love how many times awesome. you get beat up in this movie. Crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, you're beating like, up and just yeah, put them through the ringer. Yeah, you're pretty much bloody the whole time, but you're in Jumanji too. Hell yeah, how not bloody in that one. No. Actually, am I? No, I'm not. <laughs> Don't remember. <laughs> I just think. So fun. You're in the Jumanji movies, but you're also not like part of the action adventure stuff with the rock <laughs> and everything running through fields and jumping off cliffs. Right. So how's that making those movies? But do you even get to interact with them? Yeah, well I got pretty tight with um with DJ the Rock. I mm-hmm. got I got super tight with okay, him on the DJ. first one. DJ well, DJ DJ It's funny okay. because it's funny because My only DJ is from Full House. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're not the first person to make that joke. Um, <laughs> no, it's funny because it's douchey if you're around him to use The Rock. But then if you're not around him and you use DJ, that's it's douchey. Even Either way, I think when someone is douchiest, you're yeah, like, yeah. You're, you're judging me Douche- right now. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> you slid that right by me. I'm kidding. Um, but Text I think, I think when your friend, like when you're friends with someone who's like that famous, no matter what, it's going to be just weird. I mean, it is still weird. I'm around him. I'm like, dude, you're the rock. Like you are. But I remember on the first movie, he just kind of took me in and he's so warm and excited. And like, I had some ideas. He was like, sick idea. That is sick. (laughs) Write that down. Jake, you writing it down? That's sick. I love that. I love that. This kid, look at him. Look what he's doing. That's genius. That's genius. (laughs) Write it down. Write it down now. He's like an all caps person. Yeah. All caps. Yeah, but then he's really sweet and deep and listens. And, and on this one, we really got to hang out. And he was mm-hmm. so nice about like hereditary and stuff. And it, he just he's just such a good guy. And then and then most of my scenes are with Danny DeVito um, and Danny Glover um, in this one. And I, I just got really tight with those two guys, too. We Icons. must talk about hereditary. And uh, here's my question, because I've had two specific 
um, experiences with Hereditary that I feel are worth bringing <laughs> okay. up. Okay. One, I watched it on a plane on oh, a very shit. long flight, and as I was watching it, I was watching other people around me watching it <laughs> because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then secondly, I saw somebody else on a plane watching it, and I kept being obsessed with their reactions to the movie because it's so extreme and shifts genres. And so I was wondering, have you had the experience of watching somebody watch the movie? Um, the best is like listening to people watching the movie. Um, I mean, a lot of people texted me like, you're an asshole. And I'm like, what? They're like, I just watched Hereditary. What the fuck? <laughs> like a lot of people. Um, but I like, I was like in the theater and I just hear, no, oh my God. Nope. Nope. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Get out of there. Get out of there. Oh man, he's crying. He's crying. So I like those. I like those reactions. I mean, I don't watch people because if I'm ever in a theater watching and I'm just sinking in my seat, not looking at my face. Yeah. That's too difficult. It's just, ugh. You hate watching yourself that. Of course. Yeah, everybody mm. hates watching I think. I mean, if you love watching yourself, you might yeah. be a serial killer. Total narcissist. Wow. Full blown. Surprise. I'm a <laughs> yes. uh, By the way, I mean, like, I, I believe in the sanctity of award shows. Like, I think award shows are better than people. I'm like, a strange. Like, just, it's, it's an, a it's, problem. It's a universe okay, I believe yeah. in. <laughs> Except now, Tony Collette so gave the best performance of last year yeah. that now, like, a part of, like, a chip in my brain has been, you know, fucked with. I yeah. feel like I, I, I now can't believe in award shows as much as just you shouldn't ever believe in award shows they're, they're bullshit you think yeah. so yeah, every single completely. one of them every but, single one of them now you're definitely wiser than I am but Except I need I to believe critic, in something critics, critics awards are cool because you know it comes from them and I mean usually I agree with them more but it's just it's also like everybody's so anxious to those things and I mean it's cool I guess it's a cool thing but a lot of my favorite movies nobody wins and Martin Scorsese didn't win until The Departed so it's just yeah. like you know whatever I think mm. the game of like seeing who was nominated is fun but then like Associating any like inherent merit. That sounds like a band. <laughs> inherent <laughs> merit. Inherent merit. Tonight <laughs> at, at the Roxy. <laughs> to um, you know, the movies that win is a different. It's a different thing. I think we have to parse those two things out. Though, yeah. Like, right. 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 You just like it as a game, Lewis. Yeah. Yeah, it is a game. Yeah, it's a Hollywood shuffle. And yeah. it used to be that way for me. And honestly, it's only like until Hereditary and going to certain things and you know seeing Tony not get nominated. I guess I've been more like. This doesn't really have to do, and a lot of people pay, I don't know, pay and I don't know, campaign, and a lot of studios don't have the same amount of money for uh, for campaigning and getting people nominated, and so, I don't know, I'm just sort of, it's not my thing that I care about. I mean, Spike Lee won for the first time last year. Yeah, it's pretty you know? zany. It's just yeah. like, mm-hmm. I mean, the dude directed Do the Right Thing. Like, why is he, I just, I don't get it. I don't mm-hmm. get it. Do you have a favorite moment just from watching Tony on the set of that movie? Because, again, I think it's important to renote if you haven't seen Hereditary, this movie is basically, I'll say, three to four different genres. Yeah. And one of mm. them is family tragedy. So it feels like you're watching, at some point, Death of a Salesman. And then at another oh, point awesome. in the movie, you're watching Rosemary's Baby or something yeah. like that. So do you have a favorite moment just seeing her acting? That's really cool. I mean, um, well, we did we did that dinner table scene. Yeah. And I remember it pretty, pretty vividly. The stakes were so high. I was never like uh, just watching and awe. It was a lot of like um, the two of us going at it. Mm-hmm. I feel like if I was watching her, then I wasn't totally in it. So we had to kind of lose ourselves and what was going on. But doing that dinner table scene was really special. I remember. I remember on the first take, I got so mad that I slammed the table down and all the food 
flew in the air. Um, and I remember Tony, because we were, had two cameras on, I just remember Tony looking to the left as my chicken just flew <laughs> off. <laughs> and then uh, she went back and she said, don't you swear at me, you little shit. And then just looks at the chicken and then keeps going. <laughs> I feel like I'm constantly just worried for your life in movies. Um, <laughs> it's not just that. I mean, because I also saw my friend Dahmer. Mm. Uh, and mm. that is a terrifying movie. Also terrifying. Um but, you know, if you know the backstory of who you're playing, you know that you don't end up dead in it. Um, are those the kind of movies that you feel like, what do you really feel like you're drawn to? What do you want to do going forward? You know, you've been action movie. You've been in two sort of like independent horror movies, and now you've done Cat in the Moon. So, Oh, that's awesome. Um, I mean, I've gotten super lucky. Uh, it's probably all downhill from here. Um, but... I don't know. I'm drawn to just anything that 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 piques my interest. I mean, my friend Dahmer was. I was really drawn to the aspect of the the friends were such good friends, and and that it was really loose and funny, and that that was like the most fun I've ever had in a movie. It was a really goofy set, um, and I guess I'm just drawn to different things. I'm drawn to little nuggets of uh, inspiration, but I don't know. I don't really have a specific taste, but definitely I've done probably more disturbing or dark movies than the average person my age and I don't know if that necessarily means that I'm dark and disturbing but probably has something to do with it <laughs> I, I was going to call my therapist and ask him but I'll get back to you I'm, I was, I'll call him and ask him plus someone died in every episode of Naked Brothers Bear yeah so, you know. everyone Which, by the way yeah. I revisited last night I'd be remiss to not mention that the you Naked did. Brothers Band movie holds up it's good don't know why it Naked holds Brothers up movie so is well. good. And like it's with the, another cool thing about it is you're like six in the movie I yeah. think and your self awareness and your acting and your comedic timing is all there. I'm really? Like, oh, you, have Thank you seen you. it recently? Yeah, I watched it last year. I was like, wow, I got worse as an actor. I was really <laughs> yeah, good when right. I was six. No, no. My favorite scene is Arsenio Hall like tying a do rag on best. your head, and I was like, I dress right now like Alex Wolf in Naked Brothers Band movie, <laughs> <laughs> like do rags and loose clothing. It's a like, major mood. Yeah, he's you're my fashion icon. Not now. No, <laughs> when now. I was six. When you're six. No, I do like the coat though. But are you still playing music? Are you still a percussionist? Yeah. Well, I still play music. Me and my brother play all the instruments on a record. So, okay. so me and my brother are still in the band, and we we released a record last year or two years ago, and then um, just released a bunch of music. We're about to release some more. So we, since I was like eleven, Nat and I branched off from being Naked Brothers band, and we just did Nat and Alex Wolf. Mm -hmm. um, but. Yeah, yeah, we, we it's still a huge part of our lives. Yeah, that's cool. That's yeah. exciting. How do you balance all that? How do you balance being a musician and a director and a writer? Do you carve no out friends. time for that? Yeah. Well, no friends. me and me and Lewis said that we'd be a friend. <laughs> yeah, said no. I liked it that you didn't you said no. You know, I don't want friends. <laughs> serial killer, remember? I get it. Oh, right. <laughs> so you definitely want a lot of friends yeah. to murder. Yeah, to get rid of. Uh <laughs> Getting dark on the radio show today. <laughs> um, uh, thank you for being here, Alex. Yeah, thank you. You're kicking me off? Yeah. I have nothing else to do. Let's stay. Oh. I have two more hours. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Clint Eastwood's newest movie, Richard Jewell, is coming under fire over its depiction of an Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter, Kathy Scruggs, played by Olivia Wilde, who the film portrays as trading sex for tips, a fact that the paper has vigorously denied. And if you are not familiar with the Richard Jewell saga, Richard Jewell was a security guard uh, during the Olympic Park bombing in Atlanta in 1996, who was initially hailed as a hero for getting people out of the way. There was uh, somebody was killed and a bunch of people were injured, but he got a lot of people out of the way. And then eventually the tides turned and the feds came after him. They suspected him. He was maligned in the media and became this, you know, boogeyman uh, everybody hated for a minute. But then eventually he was cleared. Right. So, Lewis, you and I watched this movie last night. I did. Yes. Before we even get into this, Olivia Wilde's portrayal of Kathy Scruggs. I don't know what this woman was actually like, but she was giving you Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich and Pretty Woman. Like, boozy, sashaying about, grabbing her breasts, like a drunk Sagittarius at a party. It reminded me exactly of, and go with me here, Sherry O'Terry used to do this character on Saturday Night Live who wears a tube top in an office, and she... Uh, vigorously and disgustingly hits on her coworkers and yes. says that big piece of man meat betwixt your legs, like she's <laughs> disgusting, and like everybody's rolling their eyes at her as she, you know, straddles them. Uh, her name, that character's name is Adele, by the way, and we love you, Sherry O'Terry. But in this movie, which is a pretty austere retelling of the Richard Jewell saga, yes. She comes off so broad, and the hair is so broad. Like, the look is incredibly broad, too. Her first appearance, she looks like she's walking into the club when yeah. she comes into the bullpen. So you know that this is a wild character who doesn't play by the rules. Right. Also, and uh, as people have now noted, it really plays on... A trope that comes up in journalism movies, which is that women, in order to get this job done, in order to get like the scoop they require, fuck their sources. Yeah, fuck their basically. sources. Yeah, and like you know, if you watched Sharp Objects last year, this is a topic that came up when that show came out. But I will say about Sharp Objects with Amy Adams, who and that character was an alcoholic and ends up sleeping with somebody. She's at least the protagonist of the story, and that show is about investigating her nature. Like, why mm. is she this way is sort of the theme of that. Whereas Olivia Wilde is just a supporting character here. Mm. So we just think of her as the movie basically makes the assumption there are tons of journalists out there who are conniving in this exact same way. And, mm -hmm. you know, this story just happened to hinge on one of those people. Right. Uh, she's not the protagonist. We don't really get into her psyche. She vanishes for large parts of the film, then pops up at the end when she realizes that oh, she maligns Richard Jewell because of the information that she got from FBI agent John Hamm, who she fucks <laughs> earlier in the movie. 
Uh, we don't see the scene, but they're flirting at a bar, and she's, like, grabbing at his dick, and um, it's John Hamm, so we, we've all seen that. Right, right, right. Uh, and they're like, let's get out of here. And the portrayal of her is not just wild, but apparently very inaccurate. The Atlantic Journal-Constitution asked Warner Brothers and the makers of the film to release a statement acknowledging that they took major creative liberties for the character, saying, we hereby demand that you immediately issue a statement publicly acknowledging that some events were imagined for dramatic purpose and artistic license and dramatizations were used in the film's portrayal of events and characters. Because basically, that's not her. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's just not true to life at all. No, and the film really sort of wants to make you feel sympathetic to Richard Jewell. I mean, and obviously, right. I do feel sympathetic to him, but fuck anybody else in the movie, right? Yeah, right. And by the way, the movie at first really seems like it's going to be like the Meryl Streep movie, A Cry in the Dark, which is mm-hmm. what is famously known for Meryl saying, the dingo ate my baby. And I think people misremember it as being some sort of broad drama when actually it's a really intense evaluation of how the media can wrong people and uh, in particular that woman who refused to do the things she was supposed to do to be liked by Mm -hmm. the Australian press. I thought this movie was going to be similarly nuanced but really there's good guys and bad guys in this. It's pretty black or white. Well unfortunately it is a Clint Eastwood film and for better or worse Clint Eastwood hates nuance uh, we know that politically he's a libertarian, and you know we we saw the thing in 2012 when he was stumping for Romney and Ryan. But aside from him yelling at an invisible Obama in a chair, most of his movies always have the good guy, bad guy. You know, it's always the cops are stupid. It's mm-hmm. always the media is parasites. It's always bureaucrats and politicians are slimy, and there's always someone like bucking the system you know it's very like the dirty harry films are like that uh million dollar baby is like that when it's like oh we're going up against the medical industry you know like we're euthanizing all of his films always sort of have this person who is not a product of their environment they are rebelling against it even a film like american sniper where a lot of people thought that that was very jingoistic and, like, pro-America. But what he actually did was ignore a lot of the racist things that that main character exhibited in his real life to sort of tell this story of Bradley Cooper sort of trying to do his best while the American government was forcing him to be a part of a war. Right. Uh, it is interesting, though, because this is something you can forget while watching this movie because the guy who plays Richard Jewell, Paul Walter Hauser, who you might know as being the uh, henchman friend of Galuli in I, Tanya, really is exceptional. It's strange to me. This is always a weird thing about award season to me when somebody is amazing in a lead performance in the movie, but we don't have enough faith in that, so we focus on another performance. There's some mm-hmm. there's some uh, talk around Kathy Bates in this movie, which I think she's giving a performance you've seen a thousand times from her. Kathy Bates and Sam Rockwell are sleepwalking through this movie, and you know I love Sam Rockwell yeah. to death, but they are also products like Olivia Wilde, who's in this broad, insane comedy, and then they're in this mammoth play where they're just saying random things to each other in a room. 
Right. Yeah. It's their job to be intense but real. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Sam Rockwell to me is basically rugged Eric McCormick. That's what I would say <laughs> about him. But um, also another thing about the Olivia Wilde character, who again literally say, uh, trades sex for tips in this movie, she also ex- plays another trope, which I happen to love in movies, which is the overly intense female journalist who will stop at nothing. Like Again, we got to get into Gail Weathers and Scream. This is definitely akin to that. I'll send you a copy. Yeah, right. Um, an, uh, one that comes to mind is uh, there's this disaster movie in the 70s called The Swarm, and one of my favorite actresses, uh, Lee Grant, plays mm-hmm. her. And Okay, this is a bad disaster movie, Irwin Allen, about a bee attack. Okay, bees are here. Mm-hmm. And she is a member of the press, and she is screaming at the bees, keep that camera rolling. This is definitely in line with that. The absurd, like, there's, there's this world in movies of women who they aren't sensual, so they attach all their livelihood to the intensity of journalism. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, or, or the, later in the movie, they'll be punished in a, in a vulnerable way somehow, but right now they're obsessed with this job and are cartoonishly evil about it, basically. Mm-hmm. I will say that obviously you would expect there to be liberties taken in yeah. a film. And sometimes as a screenwriter, you have to create drama where there might not have been. But I think there's a marked difference between doing that and just basically besmirching a dead woman's character. Particularly if the movie is made to tell the quote-unquote true story of somebody who was maligned. Yes. In order to do that, you shouldn't have to... Malign someone else. Yeah, make up an incredible fabrication about somebody else's professionalism and life. Yeah, Uh, because the story of Richard Jewell in and of itself is sad. Yeah. But, you know, those are Clint Eastwood (laughs) tendencies. Remember when Clint Eastwood made the movie Changeling? Yes. With Angelina Jolie. Yes. Which is a movie, I think, about just wearing hats. Yeah. I maybe have brought this up before. Where's my son? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that she was even more broad about that. You've given me the wrong son, or whatever yeah. she could scream in that movie. It is interesting evaluating a Clint Eastwood film, because I feel like he's a director who we don't really talk about. People well, don't really talk about him. He's rarely in the conversation, so to speak, when you're talking about directors, but he is sort of a... He rises up. Yeah, he's yeah. a workhorse in that Woody Allen sort of way. He, like, he's always making a movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah, he made like The Mule last year, yeah. right? If a movie of his flops, he just goes on to the next one. Yeah. And then sometimes one rises up. He is this icon who continues to, yeah, work and somehow, I don't know, I, I don't know how, how, to, how to explain what we'd have done with Clint Eastwood. In a way, you brought up his the Obama chair speech, like, there wasn't really a fallout for him after that. No, we dragged him a lot in the moment, but because he's Clint Eastwood and he's old and he has sort of a Hollywood history behind him, we all sort of just moved on. We treat him literally like an institution, like a building. We just have to keep walking past in pop culture. Yeah. There's no taking it down. (laughs) Otherwise... The movie is whatever. I, I will agree that the lead performance was fantastic. Yeah. No, again, I thought it was going to be a more nuanced movie. but uh, and, and again, I'm always obsessed with journalism movies. I'm always obsessed with the moment when they get it right, when there's mm-hmm. a Rachel McAdams in Spotlight interviewing that guy who was uh, molested by a priest, and she says, the language is going to be really important, and she's getting it down on paper. She's doing the actual work of being a journalist. But as such, that part of this movie doesn't feel like an adult wrote it. It doesn't feel real. No, not at all. It feels it feels silly. 
you know? It's not the post. It's not state of play. Yeah. It's, you know, but by it's... the way, I want to. I actually want to bring up the post in a negative way here because this movie is also trite in the way the post is. Mm-hmm. Like all the good guys are the good guys, and they have the same values, and they're all conveniently aligned at the right moment in history. When you know, obviously, that's not the case, and people mm-hmm. were way more confused during uh, the Pentagon Papers era. But I will also, lastly, say that the movie reminded me a lot of American Sniper because Clint Eastwood his how he portrayed Chris Kyle in that film ignored sort of the nastier parts of him. Right. Yeah. And I will say that while Richard Jewell's story is sympathetic, a lot of the things we see him doing in the first act of the film are sort of like awful. Which he, such he sort as- of just seems like an overzealous white man who is just going overboard in his like policing duties. You know, it's like you're seeing someone who could potentially join the police force and abuse their power. Right. Because he feels like he lacks power and he wants some type of control. And that's sort of represented in the film as someone just doing their job and trying to fight a system that's not working and fight apathetic people who are breaking the law. Yeah. At the beginning, he's he works on a campus as a security chief and he basically justifies his overzealous behavior by saying, yeah, you didn't want a snowflake or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, And uh, that's, of course, secretly a scary thing. (laughs) Of course. Everyone is always right. There you are. Yeah. When we're back, Aida pops out of a floorboard and joins us for Keep It. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It, Lewis. We get out our cynical jazz hands and say, keep it to something. <laughs> uh, Lewis, what is your Keep It this week? Um, mine's a bifurcated Keep It. I have two. My first Keep It is two. You'll remember a few weeks ago, I got, shall we say, heated over Vanna White on Wheel of Fortune, now getting to host the show for three weeks because Pat Sajak was ill. Okay, well, Vanna stepped up. Uh, starting this past Monday. And she did a pretty good job. She's a little discombobulated. Perfectly acceptable. She has somebody in in her ear now yelling things about the letter board, reminding her, you know, that vowels cost two fifty. There's a lot to know. So I can understand her being a little unsure in her new position. However, did you know who is turning or touching the letters now? Who? For the first two weeks she's doing it. They haven't said who's going to be doing it for the third week. They are doing different Disney characters Minnie Mouse was touching the letters on day one. (laughs) And by the way, Minnie's not walking back and forth across the board. She just does like a mystical movement and the letters turn on. No, (laughs) not magical. Also, what an insult to Vanna. Vanna now ascends as I have wanted for 38 years. And who replaces her? Cartoonery. (laughs) Vanna is much, Vanna is an icon. Vanna is a a definitive part of American culture. The song Wheel of Fortune is in We Didn't Start the Fire, which is like a definitive list of Americana, wouldn't you say? Minnie is just a creepy looking alien mouse thing. And by the way, they don't ever look like mice. Mickey and Minnie are gross looking. So you hate Mickey and Minnie Mouse. What has Minnie done for us guys? What's her definitive thing? Giggling? I mean, I don't love Minnie Mouse that much. I think she's a subpar Betty Boop. That's what I'm saying. I think she, she serves polka dotted looks on the daily. I don't know what your problem is with Minnie. Okay, I will say the dottery I enjoy. 
But she just sits there and giggles, and it's like, so does the duck hunt dog. I don't care. We and, left him in the 80s. And what's Mickey Mouse do? Really? Really, truly. I don't know what they serve. But this sounds like tangentially you're not, you're more mad about Mickey and Minnie. I am. Well, again, that they would step into the very tall Carolina Herrera shoes. Does she make <laughs> shoes? Of Vanna White. <laughs> uh, I can't wait till Goofy is turning letters. Oh, I know. Again, I think actually the, the insult to Vanna will get worse every day. It'll be so, <laughs> by the end, it'll be Song of the South characters replacing Vanna. Um, also, my second keep it is to the new Ghostbusters trailer, which as I understand it had no jokes in it whatsoever. Let's remember what we liked about the 1984 Ghostbusters, which was men who look like failed improvisers finally getting a chance to shine. Uh, Grizzled, smoking in New York. Yeah. Just like, it's about people hunting ghosts, too. It's not about kids. Right, it's about snarking in pollution. This movie is about whimsy. It reminds me of that movie Super 8. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and also, Paul Rudd is in it, not giving me the delights, as I believe he is chronically able to give to me. So I don't know what's happening there. I'm preemptively canceling it. I was proven wrong when I once said keep it to the Judy trailer, and I ended up liking that movie. So there's room for me to be wrong, but not that much room. I will say that since Super 8, there's been an influx of every director who came of age during Spielberg trying to be Spielberg. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least do one Spielberg project. And every horror movie that's coming out, whether it's straight horror or whether it's comedic horror, is trying to do Stranger Things. Yeah. Like, it was basically Stranger Things, and I didn't need that. And now this looks like it could be a season of it, too. It it starts out with kids in the small town, and it's, oh, ghost busting was this thing that we used to do in the past. And now we have to rediscover it, just as people will be rediscovering their nostalgia. And, and what is the point? No, there's something strange in the neighborhood, and that thing is boredom. I'm bored. <laughs> Aida, what's your keep it this week? Okay, my keep it is the opposite of boredom. It is sincere fear that I'm feeling right now because for some reason North Korea is feeling festive and they want to send us a Christmas gift but it's a very ominous threat because we have no idea what the Christmas gift is I don't know what Kim Jong-un is up to but I would like him to pause and stop what he's doing. In 2017 the same kind of ominous threat came to us and it was yeah, North Korea is sending us a gift and it was a ballistic missile test that has the potential of hitting the United States And it's probably going to happen again. And I ask myself and I go, okay, a lot of our Christmas songs are like kissing under the mistletoe. And maybe he heard that and he's like, oh, they want missiles. But I don't want (laughs) missiles. Like, I don't want I don't want to be living in fear. And that's what I'm feeling right now. And I'm very worried. Pretty much the state of our nation right now is that Trump is off putting nuclear conversations with North Korea because we have the 2020 election coming up. And. Uh, Kim Jong-un is like, if you continue to stall this, I'm going to give you a gift. So right now we're all kind of in this precarious, don't know what the fuck is going on. Kim Jong-un could send us a missile at any moment. What if it's a Peloton bike? <laughs> Trump would be like, uh, I'll take a missile. I was say, then we start a war. <laughs> yeah, see? yeah. Starting a war over Peloton. The Trojan Peloton bike. Speaking of, I have a sideways keep it to the husband from the Peloton ad. Oh, he's the worst part of the ad. But he is given interviews now about how he feels like he has been associated with misogyny and like uh, the patriarchy and being seen as anti-woman. And it's shut up. No one's even talking about you. Yeah. Also, it's, it's also not, he's hot. It's not our fault that you cackled at your sweating wife in the commercial. <laughs> yeah. 
Gays are just sharing photos of him on Twitter, being like, oh, did you know the husband in the Peloton ad is hot? Look over at gay Twitter. The more you know, okay. Yeah. Thanks for the PSA. Yeah. Uh, but good for her, the the wife in it, though. Oh, who did that gin ad, that yeah. Ryan Reynolds gin mm-hmm. ad. Yeah. Aviation gin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most famous, popular. Famously seen in A Simple Favor. Yes, correct. I wonder how they got that cell. Well, Blake Lively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they cooked, oh, they cooked it up on the plantation you're a, oh, where they got married. Thanks for being the SponCon detective. Yeah. Anyway, my keep it this week, my real keep it this week, is to all this drama surrounding Lizzo at the Lakers game. Oh, right. Preach. So Lizzo showed up at the Lakers game in like a long black t-shirt and some boots and we were like oh okay this is a cute look giving like a little ariana grande tease uh but the back of her shirt we realized was cut out to reveal her ass and then she was just wearing a thong Mm -hmm. and here are two things that were happened online one People are always critiquing Lizzo just because they hate fat people, you know? And and that is a thing that is grating. Uh, but also, two things can be read at once. That outfit was trash. One. So I think that you have to have the conversation about how there is fat shaming going on with Lizzo. And it is because people are uncomfortable seeing a black femme uh, doing her thing and just being unapologetic about it. But... People who are criticizing that outfit aren't necessarily those same people. Mm-hmm. Because I will defend Lizzo whenever she is being unduly attacked, but that outfit was a goddamn mess. <laughs> atrocious. Honestly, just atrocious in appearance, but also the fact that she's at Staples Center in front of a bunch of children on a huge screen with her ass just full out. That has nothing to do with how fat you are or your body. That has everything to do with just like, chill. We get it. We totally get it, Lizzo. Just like right. bring it down a notch. I didn't understand it as a stunt. Like, who was she showing up at that game? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, what a strange venue to do that. It remind- Whatever, do that at the VMAs. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. That is a VMA look. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, VMA is where you have trash outfits. It reminded me of that Azalea Banks photo. You remember when she wore like a puffer jacket but then had um, short denim shorts but the ass cheeks were cut out? She looked awful too. Horrendous. It's not a cute look ever. (laughs) And also I think about people like Rihanna who have been to the Staples Center a million times and have never shown their ass. Like I don't understand this idea that she's so obsessed with sexualizing herself and normalizing sexuality of fat women that she's hypersexualizing herself in a way that's almost... It's not beneficial for her. Mm-hmm. It's doing the quite. It's doing the opposite. I right. would read a Wikipedia list of people who have attended the Staples Center but haven't shown their ass. Yeah, <laughs> <You should laughs> compose that. It's quite literally everyone but Lizzo. <laughs> right. You know, I get that because you know, like you want to see her visible and owning her sexuality as a fat black woman, um, and you know, just normalizing the fact that all bodies can be sexual. You know, uh, it's something that I would feel like I go through. You know, within the black, within the gay community, but. But it is there's a difference between doing that and then really just making it your platform mm-hmm. because it 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 steeps out of activism at that point and it becomes narcissism as activism. Girl, yeah, show cleavage, show and, some midriff. I mean, like the Jamila Jamil of it all <laughs> is is truly what is happening here. It's like, yes, girl, do your thing, but also chill. Chill. 
Yeah. Also, the hole in the ass, like the, the hole, hole in the ass. The, 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 in like the ass. outfit just did not look good. It looked like a like a Polar Express Christmas nighty, you know, like mm-hmm. you just like t- turn the <laughs> flap down and drop a little, <laughs> drop a little number two. It was a pretty broad stunt, but it only made me say wow, and then huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, how come, Chief Willoughby? <laughs> Wow, it's really crazy that Three Billboards has a foothold in our <laughs> quotability now. Anyway, that's our episode. Uh, thank you to Alex Wolf for being here, and we'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 